DJ Simulationistas, sup, with Dr. D, Dan Raymer, and Dr. J, Janice Palaganis, coming at you from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts. So buckle up your mannequin, and let's roll. DJ Simulationista Sup. You're here with Janice Palaganis. And Dan Raymer. Sup, Janice. And we have Dr. Death with us. <laughs> Sup, Dr. Death. How did you get that name? Well, first, Jen, would yep. you introduce yourself? We are so interested in knowing how you got that, that name. Absolutely. So, yeah. So, Jen Arnold down here at Johns Hopkins All Children's. But I got the name Dr. Death back in residency and fellowship because for some reason I had a lot of patients that were dying on my watch. But not, again, a lot of them like on that path, but I was one of those uh, physicians not afraid to have the, 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 the D conversation, the big D, um, with families and parents and, and the other care providers. So I, I had a lot of codes too. So it was a combination. I wasn't afraid to deal with it, but I also, seemingly, everybody coded on my watch that night. Like I had more, co- I would have a, wait, the next morning I'd be like, how many codes do you have tonight, Jen? I'm like, three. And in pediatrics, that is not common. I mean, you go for like a month without a code. So I can't say that that was every night. So hopefully it's not just the care I was delivering. But Don't be on when Jen's working. <laughs> yes, everyone's, they didn't all die, by the way, on the code side. They just tried to die. <laughs> but then I've, I've definitely had a lot of, sadly, experience, uh, you know, redirecting care for kids who... We knew it was a fetal situation. So I don't know. For some reason, I was pretty comfortable in those conversations. So that's a hard title to get. And I mm-hmm. and I think it'd be really great for us to unpack how you gain those skills because we could all really use those skills. So what, have you reflected on this? Like how, what makes you yeah. comfortable with having those conversations? Because I'm uncomfortable having them. You know, it's funny. I mean, I'm definitely uncomfortable with the idea of death. I don't like death. I don't want anyone to go through it, but we're all going to. So... I guess where my maybe my comfort level comes from it is being, I mean, the only thing I can guess is being a patient um, so much of my life and having near-death experiences or situations where I feared my own death, you know, seeing other people die around me when I was very young. Not a lot, but a couple, enough to make it, you know, kids my age. So I think I just started dealing with it early on in life and kind of understand from the patient perspective how horrible it is, but it's important to talk about. Well, this is really cool because Dan and I just did a podcast on resilience. And we thought about how resilience is a serious advantage of simulation. That we, you know, we put our learners through these experiences that they wouldn't otherwise have, and they create this resilience. And in the literature, it hasn't really been explored or studied or addressed. And Johns Hopkins is doing this awesome program called RISE, right? And it's resilience in stressful events, I think. I think so. And... And I and you have a, a similar program that you're looking to roll out here in your hospital, and so I think it'd be really cool to talk about that. Yeah, no, I think it's very important for healthcare providers to be resilient, if at all possible, to understand those skills. I think we see it in other people, and we may not know how to describe it, but you just know it when you see it. So. The RISE program is one of the programs that they're um, looking to develop here that will really help as a peer-to-peer support mechanism so that you have someone that's got 
some training in how to support a peer, a colleague in a very critical situation, a stressful situation, and maybe things didn't go so well for the patient. And just to have that opportunity to get that immediate support, um, sort of someone on call anytime to help us as care providers. So I'd really like to talk about, I think Dan and I would really like to pick your brain about post-clinical event debriefing. I think our listeners could hear what you're doing here and maybe take it and adopt some of what you're saying and bring it to their centers. That'd be really great for healthcare. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, the RISE program is one component of what I hope could be just really a, a continuum of care for healthcare providers, so to speak, in terms of our learning from our high-risk critical events, also supporting each other when we go through those critical events, and then also using debriefing skills to improve the safety of our hospital environments too. When I think of like debriefing clinical events as a topic, I think there's so much that it could do. There's so many components to it that you have to think about what is needed in your institution and how do you apply those principles to to really get the most out of a a debriefing clinical event type of approach. So I guess the paradox here is that everyone knows that uh, we don't debrief actual clinical events enough. I hear that over and over and over again. And simulation programs are developing, you know, as a almost a specialty throughout the world. And so so connect the dots. Like the paradox is that, you know, we're doing one thing over here, we're doing something else over there. How do you connect the dots and make sure that what we know and learn and develop in simulation can transfer to the clinical realm. So so I think it's interesting that you bring that up because you're right. We don't do it enough, but everybody wants it. And so I think what I often hear about the barriers to doing it, I mean, some of them are logistical time and getting the team together and location. But I think the biggest barrier that I hear is people's either fear or uncertainty about how to approach those debriefings. And so what are the skill sets that we need and who's going to lead the debriefing and, and you know, how do we maintain a, a, a sort of a psychological safe environment for those very high-risk and very personal events that happened to, that you were just involved in that are real. And so I think the bridge of taking what we learn in simulation to provide a safe learning environment is paramount to helping debriefing in clinical environments to be successful. In a simulation, we spend a lot of time kind of pre-briefing and doing a nice introduction and saying very nice things about the environment and psychological safety and all of those sorts of things. I just, you know, having been in the clinical environment and knowing how fast moving it is and how people's attention span is, you know, measured in nanoseconds and like, like how do you think you can actually practically translate how to, like the psychological safety part? or Yeah, yeah. How do you, envisioning having this, you know, 20-minute kind of interactive oration about the, that constitutes a pre-brief that we, that we have in simulation because of its unique nature, just doesn't translate well for me from what I know of the clinical environment. Gathering those people together in any circumstance and sitting around and in a private safe space to create that psychological safety seems like 
really, really difficult. So Yeah, well, I, I agree with you there. I don't know that we'll ever quite make it or be able to apply the exact same way or methods of promoting psychological safety in the clinical environment as what we have the ability to do in simulation. But I think with creativity, there are ways that we can improve it at least and try to get there. Knowing you may never get to the perfect holy grail, but every step we make in that direction, the better. So things that maybe, I mean, I would love to see in the year, you know, 2025, an ICU team is having huddles at the beginning of the day. And in fact, it's already happening in many units. They're doing these morning huddles and things, change of shift, and there's some operational things that they're trying to address. But maybe one of the things that we embedded them is a little bit of that pre-briefing, like we're all here to take do our best and have a you know a great day taking care of patients, but we know things are going to go wrong. We're here to support each other and learn from each other and sort of you know stating some of the basic assumption of the other principles we use in sim and applying it to the clinical world at the start of our day, mm-hmm. so that we've all like heard it at least once. Because obviously, when the crisis happens, at least in certain units, you don't know it's going to happen. You don't have time to to have a quick pre-brief right before you roll into yeah. that that code that you get called to. But at least if you've said it at some point, depending on the work environment that you're in, it, it, people have heard it. The more you do it, then the more people are going to be used to it and, and hopefully understand what that really means. And then I think the other part of translating to that, at least on the psychological safety part, is training people on safety briefing skills. And so it may not be that everyone becomes an expert debriefer, but at least we've got the basic principles of what we need to have a safe environment for discussing very high-risk situations. So whether you use plus delta or advocacy inquiry, we, we all have a certain stance about it and that knowledge set. As opposed to pointing the finger and blaming other people. Yes, yes. Or, yes. or different people coming in with different background and training. And I do think it's great that people will have the structure to expect and be able to know how to organize their thoughts as they go in. It's so funny that you're talking about the pre-briefing because as you were talking about it, it reminded me of a place where I used to work at Loma Linda University. We, uh, it's a religious institution, Seventh-day Adventist, and we would say prayer before mm-hmm. every shift. And I found that really interesting because it does center around the patient and the family and your work together. And it, it does have that effect. Now, yeah. I, I don't know about the difference in outcomes or anything like that, sure. but it's very interesting. That's um, really fascinating. And I love the complexity that you're addressing here in terms of psychological safety and and debriefing in that continuum. And so, Jen, you have described to me a spectrum, and I think that that is just so interesting to think about it at different levels of the spectrum post-event. Would you mind talking a little bit about the spectrum? Yes. So, so you know, many of our, our colleagues have, you know, written about types of debriefing clinical event programs in the ways you might approach it. There's hot debriefs, which are, me- you know, immediately after an event. Then there's the warm, which is sort of like within a small window after an event, you gather folks together. And then there's the idea of the cold, which could be retrospective. You have more information available to you about what happened. You may be able to, maybe easier to bring in external folks to that debriefing that occurs, but it also may be harder to get the people that were really in that event back together. So they all, all those different like formats to me have value and potentially different purposes along a continuum of how you can really, really integrate debriefing into your everyday work environment to support the different needs that you have. So for example, like a, a hot debrief, I think it would be important for you know, maybe the maybe the benefits there are just getting that emotional release, having a little bit of peer-to-peer support. You identify 
some folks might need more support and that's where some a program like rise could step in and give that more expert level support um, and then maybe even more beyond that depending on the needs of the individual and then you move into maybe uh, maybe certain environments Hot debriefs are possible, but we can do a little bit of a warm. We're still that intact team, and we're still learning from our performance as a self-reflecting group. We're still maybe supporting each other emotionally after what happened. It's a little bit more feasible in terms of what that their, their work schedule looks like. And then you go on to the cold. Maybe you decide there's certain things that move on to a cold debrief just by the nature of the clinical event or the outcome or whatever your criteria are that you establish for your program. And that's where you may have more higher level experts leading that debriefing with more information. Maybe there's more organizational or system or, or clinical learning that happens there. But all of those, whether you take one piece and start with it or you develop a whole program that spans time within your institution, I think it's critical that you know the purpose of each, that they support each other, and that you maintain a level of psychological safety throughout. And that yeah. could be different in each type of debriefing, but it needs to be a part of it. It seems like this is maybe futuristic and maybe it's completely impossible, but simulation educators that become really expert debriefers could transition into a role, a former role, where every institution or several within an institution people, their job is to do debriefings of real clinical events. And I guess I was, you know, when I first started to say that, I was so skeptical because, you know, creating a new entity and getting it accepted in a, in a you know, somewhat resistant to change healthcare system uh, seems like a, yet another mountain to climb. <laughs> but it sounds like you're, you're thinking broadly about this. So could you imagine such a thing and how would it happen? I would definitely love to imagine such a thing, and I can imagine it. I do agree with you. There's some hurdles to overcome, but I don't think it's impossible. I think the hardest part is going to be identifying that group of experts and training them up within. Is that somebody that you hire in for a role or somebody that you, you train up into that role that already exists in your organization? And so that's the questions that come to my mind. You know, how many do you need? Mm-hmm. Are those experts going to be available 24-7? I could see maybe even having different levels of experts. Maybe there's, you know, thinking about how the RISE program in and of itself has developed to be available 24-7, maybe there's a certain level that's available within every unit. On call, an event happens, the hot debriefing sim expert goes in, they're already there, and they're one of the trained levels, but maybe it's a higher level trained expert that leads the cold because you can gather everybody together. It's maybe more an intensive discussion, warrants a little bit more expertise. I mean, again, I, I don't know that I have all the answers. I could just start to think about how we might model a program with an expert debriefer. That, that's what they do. So the hard thing to me is how would you get the world of clinicians to call code debrief and invite someone into their space when they've just had a problem and the tendency is to you know, keep it within the family how how could you ever convince them that they would benefit by calling the... See, I love the, this the, question. Yes. Because when I used to work trauma way back in the day when I first started, we videotaped all, and it was BCR, we videotaped all of our traumas, and then after each trauma, you had to debrief it. We had to debrief it. And then HIPAA came along. And we could no longer videotape our, for patient privacy, couldn't videotape. And so we didn't. 
we, we stopped with the debriefings. And it was amazing watching yourself like, oh, I didn't know it took me so long to get that medication and actually get myself in there and give that medication. Like there was so much that you learn from watching that. We don't do it anymore. So maybe it's not just code debriefing. Maybe it's like you were multiple saying, events. Like multiple events at the end of every shift or something. Yeah. I, maybe it's a daily practice, not a... I think it's like figuring out hardwiring. How can you hardwire it into your your unit, the, the patient care populations that you have, and then getting those experts. And so... And then um, building trust. And then building trust. So that this outside person is viewed by the various tribes within the unit they're a neutral person and they don't they don't side with the nurses or side with the doctors or side with the respiratory therapists they're neutral enough that everyone begins to trust them to do a you know honest and impartial facilitation of the events that occur well, you make me wonder, too, if, you know, the lessons we're learning in debriefing sims, how they might apply to this particular example, because, you know, I, I can tell you that I have, people have come up to me and said, Jen, I just so wish you were there at that clinical event because it was debriefed and it was not a psychologically safe environment, and um. I just wanted someone. So I could see many groups might actually embrace and desire to have someone come in that knows how to get that that psychological yeah. safety. But maybe there's an, also an opportunity for some co-debriefing or an associate debriefer, that because I could also see the value of, you know, if I came in there and I was debriefing as a simulationist, you know, I have knowledge about debriefing, but not about the OR environment, you know, there might be eye rolling because I'm not an expert in what the OR looks like and how it functions and operates. And so you might have to have like, you identify an associate debriefer that's got some level of training that has the clinical expertise or the knowledge of that unit to be able to make it very relevant in addition to a safe environment. I don't know. But I mean, that's so interesting because I think it increases the psychological safety being that if the person who's facilitating the conversation is coming from a department of education, not human resources, not patient safety, not risk management, you know, a more neutral department that is focused on learning, it increases to me what at least the psychological safety. I always tell folks when I do like clinical system tests with SIM, because it's, you know, I'm usually, I recommend that someone from the SIM team lead it. I have no dog in this fight. Like, I'm just here to help facilitate and help you guys figure out what's best for your environment. Well, really interesting. Thank you, Jen. Well, thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, you cannot see the tears in our eyes. We are leaving Jen Arnold today in St. Pete and Tampa, Florida, going back to Boston. But more sad that we're leaving our wonderful, great friend who we've had such a great time with. Thank you, Jen. Thank you. Just love you guys. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you for visiting us in sunny Florida. For our listeners, I just want to mention that Jen is a neonatologist and her... Uh, her that's her clinical world and she has a TV show a reality TV show which has exposed her life to the general public and so uh, we all know from that TV show that Jen has had a number of medical issues uh, of a serious nature and so that certainly has given her some experience here so I just want to add that in because we started off at the beginning and we didn't Right. Fully introduced. Yeah, we didn't fully introduce Jen and Sina. I thought they were That's missing. So, okay. so. The Dr. Death part. All right. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, yeah, Thank like, you yeah. both for making this work. Right. DJ Simulationistas, what's up? Is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. 
Find out more about CMS and learn about our simulation instructor training and course offerings at www.harvardmedicine.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.